Hello and welcome to this podcast from Notting Hill Editions. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to have as my guest in this programme Alison Leslie Gold, who is perhaps best known for her book Anne Frank Remembered, which she wrote with Meep Geese, one of the people who protected the Frank family during the war. Before her collaboration on that book, Alison had experienced a lost decade in which she descended into alcohol addiction. Writing the Anne Frank book represented a return to life, a rediscovery of interest in other people and their stories. She became, as she puts it, a miner, a midwife, a salvager of other people's stories. But as she writes in the prologue of her new book, Found and Lost, During these subsequent excavations, I always kept my personal life apart from my writing, until today. She goes on, What I have ventured to do now is to gather fragments, materials and letters to the living and the dead, letters to and from family, friends, friends of friends, strangers, associates, a translator, an editor, a lover. All these bits and pieces spilled through my life and heart within the space of a few years. When I met Alison in London recently, she began by telling me more about the book's origins. I mean, the book started as a kind of treatise on close friends dying. And uh, it's in five parts, and it's about six deaths. And the first part was initially published by a small press connected to the American University in Paris. But after experiencing these first two deaths, one my aunt and the second my mentor, more people died. So I I continued in the style, in the unusual style of the book. And my fellow actors on the stage were falling off the stage and dropping dead on the stage and declining and suffering and something I hadn't ever prepared myself for. And uh, and it kind of went on and on. And then somehow the book evolved into... Well, one of the key people that died was my co-author and friend, Meep Geese, whose book I had written, which had kind of launched my career as a book writer and threaded through this, these deaths was the, the fact of all these losses, but also the idea that I had at that point spent 20 years writing about Meep and Anne Frank and the Holocaust and very dark subject matter. And at the point that my loved ones started dying, I uh, had said that I wasn't going to write about the Holocaust anymore. And I had actually published a book a few years before about love, you know, to try to sort of (laughs) cheer myself up. But I kept being drawn back. But also, as I was in the process of writing this and the deaths were 
happening. I was aging. I was approaching my 70s. Also, I mean, I really began writing the book as Obama won the election in the United States, and it really kind of ends when the unmentionable won <laughs> the election last year. And I try to deal in some way with the devastation of the state of the world and my sense of being marginalized and not really feeling like I belong in the world anymore, nor do I want to. And some of the material, as you say, you were writing very close to the events that you describe. Yes. Oh, but yes. did you, in order to to bring it together as a as a book, do you think you needed to have the distance of a few years to, to put it in perspective? Not really, because as different events were... I mean, it's sort of like a collage, but it, it's kind of current. As I was putting bits and pieces together, letters and emails and kind of surreal little moments, I was... Uh, also kind of dropping in other materials that related to like readers of mine writing to me and an editor friend of mine sort of declining and also dying and then another translator friend uh, kind of trying to get me to constantly sending me holocaust stories and sort of begging me not to give it up because it was the end of the lives of the last of the surviving stories. And so somehow everything was current. I mean, and then they, it, 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 it threaded together. How did you decide how much detail to go into about your personal life and other people's personal lives that have intersected with you did you have any sort of ground rules for yourself or did you was it more instinctive than that well it was totally instinctive and I mean I've always been very discreet in my you know writing about other people's lives and always prided myself on protecting secrets and also allowing people to sort of censor whatever they want I've never tried to expose anyone and and I'd been criticized by other writers I know in my career for not revealing more about myself and sort of staying kind of in the closet, per se, and, and not writing about my addictions and just being this sort of passive uh, onlooker in life. And as I started telling the story, it, it just seemed to... The limits seemed very natural to me. I mean, it wasn't as though I was tempted to go further with anything or into more kind of sordid detail or less. It was only afterwards that I was kind of shocked at myself and anguished about what have I done. I wanted I wanted to talk a little bit about Meep Geese, whom you whom you mentioned, because. She emerges from the book as an extraordinary character and a character who had a transformational effect on your life. And at one point in the book, an agent writes to you and 
suggest you write a basically a memoir about your your friendship, which I guess is one of the other directions that your mm-hmm. your writing could have gone in. But is it too reductive to say that you're meeting Meep and deciding to collaborate or wanting to collaborate with really did transform your life, saved you in a sense? Uh, is it is it what is it too reductive? No, it isn't because it, I mean it it may seem kind of fairy tale-ish, but it's re- it's totally true. I mean, my true life, I mean, I feel like I've lived two lives. I mean, I lived, well, I was a child who was, ran this little lost and found in my school and liked doing that. And then when I got a little older, I was an activist in civil rights in the South. But then I discovered uh, intoxicating drugs and alcohol and lifestyles, and I kind of lost any altruistic leanings. And I just was drawn into this uh, life of dissolution. And I had been a, a kind of, you know, had some talent as a writer in school and got some little awards and things like that. But once I became this kind of ne'er-do-well, bum, playgirl. I mean, my my theme in life was I want to have a good time. And somehow that really connects to my alcoholism. It's one of the keynotes of my alcoholism, which was that as I, my thirst got larger and larger, I became extraordinarily selfish and self-centered and lost interest in the world and other people. And and I think I'm not the only one that that happens to. And then after a 10-plus year sort of binge, I bottomed out and had no money left. I'd gotten a divorce settlement when I was very young. That's why I had the money to roam around the world and live all over the place and kick up my heels and I had a son and as I tumbled down to the you know to the end of it I'd run out of money and ended up in rehabs and uh, in spite of myself started to recover I was very lucky that I it was a long time ago. It was uh, 1975. It was just before my 30th birthday, and it was in 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 the United States. In, in New York, treatment centers were brand new, and I was so fortunate to get into the one treatment center. I mean, I almost died uh, before my 30th birthday. I should have been dead, and. I come from a teetotaling family, so no one really knew what was going on with me, and you know, and I was very independent and willful, and and then I was trying to, you know, rehabilitation. What was rehabilitation? Just I had the sense that if all that I'd be able to do, I didn't suddenly have aspirations again or dreams. I just thought if I can kind of white knuckle it and find some menial kind of work and find a way. I mean, this was just like in the end of the 70s and just when homelessness was starting and in the Reagan years in the United States, and uh, and I was a wreck. And I at that point, I had a nine-year-old child, and 
you know, I just thought somehow maybe I'll like be able to have this peripheral life. And then kind of fate uh, snuck in at different moments. And But is, is that, is, I mean, it, it seemed to me that you had shown remarkable... I don't know quite what the word is. You had you had burst out of that that bubble, that sort of selfishness that you described, because you could have just held down some kind of job and get, got your life together. No. But you you conceived of a, a really quite ambitious project. No, 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 no. It happened slowly. I mean, at first, I just did a little writing because it was something I could do. I wrote some articles using pseudonyms to make quick thousand dollars and meanwhile did temp work and sort of did anything but I didn't have any aspirations I I was didn't mind writing schlock I didn't care I really didn't have any any dreams and and for f- three or four years I just did various writings and then in around 84 when I was sober I guess about seven years or eight years through kind of an accident of, you know, a job I got in television as a researcher. And I stumbled on the story of Meep and her husband. And even though I come from a Jewish family, we were secular. We didn't, I'd never, I'd been in a synagogue once in my entire life and and had no interest in the Holocaust. I'd read The Diary of Anne Frank when I was a child, but hadn't thought about it twice. And suddenly, I there I was in this job, and I was developing ideas for them, and I stumbled on an idea connected to the Holocaust, and the next thing I knew, I was drawn into this story. And and became aware this there was a connection in the story to Anne Frank and became aware that these two chunks of history, who at that point were the only surviving members of the group that had surrounded Anne Frank and her family. She was in her 70s, he was in his 80s, and I just, it was like I was struck with an arrow of purposeness. That's a really interesting moment, I think, where you Absolutely. not only do you think this is a not only is there a story here, but I want to to write it to to work with them to to make something of this so it's not lost. I mean, you you yes, you talk a lot right. about not the stories which are in danger of being lost and preserving the stories and and bringing them into that the light. That was the first, and yeah. that was the first time I felt it, and it was visceral. You know, it wasn't. Uh, and when I went went to Holland to try to to interview them, they said I could come there and interview them for an article. I I didn't have any idea what a sort of big story it was. It just seemed that it needed to be saved. It needed to be preserved. I suddenly had a purpose in life, and it was like my soul woke up, truly. And since then, doing that book, well, the three of us working for two years on that book was, you know, a study. And I I was sort of an innocent, and they were an innocent, because as soon as an agent saw the the idea, you know, for what I thought would be an, an article, a long article, like a New York Times uh, feature story or something. 
they said book and then suddenly sold it for a huge amount of money. And the three of us kind of held on to each other because none of us, well, A, were interested in money or had any imagination that this was a commercial subject. And I mean, as it turned out, the timing was absolutely perfect. It, it came out in 1987. We started working on it in 84. And Otto Frank had died in 80. And it was that perfect moment that thousands of Holocaust survivors who, who'd remain mute after the war were aging. And some of them, for, for the first time, started talking. The subject sort of came into the spotlight somehow. I mean, it was a perfect moment. But it gave me a sense because I felt sort of, after several years of sobriety, I began to realize how, how, how lucky I was. I mean, I did start to get well and feel a bit better about life. And I just felt this sense of purpose and that I needed it, that I felt better with it. And that I was so lucky to have stumbled into all this and, you know, that it had fallen from the sky that I made a pact with myself to, for whatever time I had left on earth, to try to only write books or anything and tell stories that I felt were meaningful and needed to be told and and not to just write to write or to make money and because I just felt like it's so good to be of use in the world. I mean, it just sounds very corny. I guess at heart I was really a good little <laughs> citizen, you know. Your relationship with me went very much farther than subject and author. I mean, I think in the book you refer to her as a role model. Is that right? What were you, what were you thinking when you... Well, kind of, yeah. She was, uh, she was a role model because she was clear about what her values were and what was right and what was wrong and her kind of modesty that she hadn't done anything special because this is what, even though she'd risked her life for 21 months and broke, you know, really exhausted herself and so had her husband to try to feed these people and keep them cheered up and she said, this is what you do for friends, period. It's not, no discussion. I'm not a hero. That's really her kind of iconic line. I'm not a hero. And you don't have to be special to be help people, which is an incredible message. I wondered, you, talk, you talked a little while ago, Alison, about writing stories that matter, you know, not just doing things for commercial gain, but stories that you really felt needed to be told. Did you ever feel a sort of overpowering weight of responsibility? Because even in, even in, in this book, people are, are often suggesting stories and trying to encourage you down particular paths. Having taken on that mantle, was it sometimes rather onerous? Yes, it was. I mean, with uh, Meep and Jan's story... I felt a huge responsibility, and I mean, I, you know, we'd work together, and I'd go back to my little hotel and collapse every day. I was, I was scared to death, and I did feel this terrible responsibility. And then, right after the book came out, a, a film, 
company and a co-production between a Hollywood company and an English company, bought the film rights. And I was a associate producer or something like that, but I was like the policeman. And I spent an entire year angry and in a bad mood and fighting with them because they start taking dramatic license and doing things. And and I felt like I was this sort of police to protect this, the people, the story, the, the authenticity. And what about the untold stories, though? You clearly get offered or suggested lots of stories. Do you feel that's the sort of weight of of those voices that have not been no, recorded? Have you managed to, a way to, to deal with that so you no, don't feel... No, because I'm, like, burned out. I mean, I've, I've published, I published, I think, six six other books connected somehow to the Holocaust. I mean, I have one book called Fiat's Vaz and Other Stories of Survival that is 25 stories of survival, and, and some of them were the same kind of discoveries of salvaging and rescuing stories and finding these incredible stories that needed to be told and telling them. I mean, all my books have some of that in them. So I had done it for 20 years, and I was, I just, you know, at that point, all my relatives were dying, and I just, I just didn't want to write about the Holocaust anymore. I want to talk about something a bit happier in that case. <laughs> let's let's go from the grey skies of, of Amsterdam to the sunlight of Greece because oh. Greece is another very important place Absolutely. in your in your life. Absolutely. And also, I, want, I wanted to ask you about a woman called Lily. And if you describe Meep as your role model, you describe Lily as your mentor. I think in the book, mm-hmm. and she's a, she's an amazing character she's of the sort amazing. they do not make anymore. I think so. Tell yeah. tell me a little bit about her. Well. In 1970, when I was 25, my little son was five, we sailed across the Atlantic Ocean on a ship called the Queen Anna Maria, a Greek ship, to meet two friends, a German friend and an American friend, to spend a month in romantic Greece, or poetic Greece. and. My friends had driven from Spain and hated Yugoslavia, so they got to Greece early and they figured we don't want to hang around in Athens and they accidentally went to Hydra because it was one of the closest places to Athens and they the German ran into this mad Russian woman and said, "Oh, we're here for a few hours looking for a house and Lily knew a house and arranged a rental for for us. So when I got off that ship on the under the full moon in, on June 21st, 1970, you know, the next day we went to Hydra and the house we'd rented was right above Lily's where Lily lived with her her children and her husband. And I was just mesmerized by her. I mean, she was I guess I was 25, she was 45 or something like that and what beautiful and wild and so erudite and riveting. I mean, I listened to her, and she never stopped talking. So, And she would recite poetry in, in a variety of languages she from spoke, memory. She spoke, I think, four or five languages and would sort of break in. Yeah, she, she 
knew poetry, she knew songs, she had wisdom, she had gossip. I mean, she knew, seemed to know everything. She was just incredibly bright. And, and you know, she drank too. And But she kind of took my son and I under her wing and realized, kind of got the picture that I hardly ever ate and was always chasing me with food. And we went for a month and stayed two years on that island without leaving. And then for the next, until her death at age 85, at least twice a year, I, I, a few years later, bought a house there. And I would go for at least a month or two, two twice a year, sometimes three or four months. And she was always there. So this friendship, like my friendship with me, continued and grew and became a kind of lifelong friendship. And indeed, in the book, you continue writing to her even after yeah, her death. I do. She was a great influence and, and meant a lot to me, to my son. She also instilled a lot in me. You know, she was the type of person that somebody would get off the boat with luggage. She'd go and pick up the luggage. You know, the new me, when I started being sober and tr trying to form a personality, trying to find out who I was, she was a very good influence, even though she was kind of mad and impossible. But like my friendship with Meep went on until she was almost 101. And with Lily, she was 85. And I was with, as it happened, I spent the last day of Lily's life with her. And I spent the day before Meep died with her, too. These things don't happen again. And there are wonderful little vignettes that you recall, they such really as are. such as um, the helium balloons on the day of her 100th birthday. I loved that little detail, which uh, otherwise I, would be lost, wouldn't it? It would just be gone in, into the ether. I, totally. And I have a million more of those. I mean, I really have a million more of those about her, about Lily. I mean, this is sort of my, you know, I'm not a scholar. I'm not erudite in any way. I don't speak any languages. I'm not particularly educated. But... I have a good sense of story and, you know, little vignettes. And and I I could do another book about me, wonderful moments with me. And, I mean, we also had a lot of fun. And in a, in a book which is punctuated by deaths, and some of it is, is very sober and, and reflective, you nonetheless allow light in, in various ways, sometimes by putting in a seemingly random piece of correspondence from a member of the public or a yeah. scam or some of the text is written in, in red and just little, it could be a little dream or a little yeah. aperçu yeah. or you see the philosopher Spinoza with his dog and all sorts of yeah. all sorts of things like that. you must have had fun with I that in order fun. to you know release the pressure for you and, and thereby for the reader oh totally I, I mean I, everything I've written I have fun with and you know, wherever, there's always a moment of sort of surrealism or levity or something that gets shuffled in with the rest of it. I'm really lucky because I'm not particularly ambitious or perfectionistic, so I don't put pressure on myself, and it always sort of comes around in its own time. 
Alison Leslie Gold. Her latest book, Found and Lost, is available from Notting Hill Editions. You can find out more about it at nottinghilleditions.com. That's all for this podcast. So until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.